Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. For sound check, is this on? It's, uh, it is? A little bit higher, yeah. How about now? Higher? It's okay? Anybody need it higher? What out there, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, I hope it's washing away everything that needs to be purified. Not too fast, but uh, cleaning out. <clears throat> it's interesting how the same thing that in one uh one day in our life, we might say, oh, what a drag this is. It's raining. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. And given a different context, oh, thank goodness it's raining. <clears throat> it's another indication that it's, it's not what's happening out there. It's, it's our relationship to our experience. Mm, I want to uh, talk tonight about wise effort. This is a really uh, key issue in practice. And I want to um, address it from uh, two different aspects of this word effort. It's used a lot in the, in the teachings. As I'm sure most of you know, it's a, uh, a key element in the Eightfold Path. Wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Uh, and uh, it is, um, it's really the source of everything that happens, our um, willingness to show up. I want to talk um, first a bit in terms of the effort that we put into practice, and then uh, in a more... Um, refined way looking at uh, the uh, four wise efforts in these teachings. So first the, uh, the idea about effort as far as um, how much should I do? This is a question that comes up a lot. Sometimes people can come into uh, an interview and say, you know, I... Um, I think I, I need to, to do more and to give, give more uh, because it's not, it's not really working. I'm not as concentrated as I'd like to be. I'm not as mindful as I'd like to be. Uh, I must not be doing enough. Or another time somebody else or the same person can come in and say, well, I'm really getting wound up here. Uh, there's, there's something that's, that's not working how much is enough? How much is not enough? How much is too much? And we get different messages also from maybe the teachers sitting in the front of the room or uh, something that you might have read. Some teachers or some teachings uh, 
talk about heroic effort. I was with a, a, a really um, powerful uh, master who talked a lot about heroic effort. Just turn up the jets and you can never do too much. And if your leg is seems like it's going to fall off, just keep noting as it goes, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> falling off, falling off. You know. There's a a, uh, a a term, you know, practice like your hair is on fire. And I kn- I know how to practice like that. I know what it's like to practice like that. I should say. And there's some value in it. Uh, I can I can say. However. Um, it's got to be a balanced effort because it's so easy to get wound up and tight. Uh, And so you need to just know how to come wholeheartedly into practice if that's an attitude that you, uh, that inspires you. Strive on diligently, another term in the teachings. And then you hear other teachings that say, relax, simple and easy. One of my main inspirations, main teachers, Meninjaji used to say, simple and easy, simple and easy, empty phenomena rolling on. Nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have, Buddha Dasa would say. Or, let's see if I can find it here. This great, um, can I find it? If I have it, oh, here it is. This is uh, Tibetan Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself, there's nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Sounds pretty good. Now, these are very high teachings that, um, that are given to um, Tibetan practitioners after they've done the preliminary practices of 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 mantra recitations and uh, visualizations and they're working their butts off and then somebody says, just relax, you know. (laughs) So who's right and who to believe? And what kind of ideas do you have about effort and about practice? Mm. Often where we get caught is evaluating our effort by what's going on in our practice. Like I said a moment ago, am I concentrated? Am I not concentrated? I've got so much emotion, I've got no emotion. You know, And whatever your idea of what good practice is, uh, it's so easy to get caught in a judgment around that. I remember one early retreat where I was pretty much hanging out with the breath 
And uh, everybody around me seemed to be having these deep catharses and, you know, tissue boxes were just kind of disappearing, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, I, I'm just watching my breath here. I don't know if I'm getting my, my money's worth out of this. And I went, I went to uh, my teacher saying, um, hey, look, uh, what's going on here? I, I, I don't know if I'm missing something. Uh, you know, just in, out, you know, big deal. Um, and he advised me, um, and he was right. He said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough. <laughs> and it did. But if you have some idea of being some kind of magical hindrance-free yogi, and that's what you're striving for, uh, please let go of it. Because the hindrances, as uh, uh, Andrea talked about, and, and you, I'm sure you know, are just part of the practice. That's just part of being human and having a mind and having a body. It's not so much getting rid of them, but how, how can I work with them skillfully? But if you judge your effort by what is happening in your practice, it's, um, it's going to be a dead-end street because that means unless you're perfectly clear or calm or whatever your idea is, concentrated, if your mind doesn't wander a lot in, in, in a sitting, then you might have the mistake that, oh, I should be doing it a different way. And so it's important to realize that um, there's no one right amount of effort to do. It's, um, it's a balance. Everything in practice is a balance. And so to just really see what do I need right now to show up fully for my practice. And at different times that might look differently. If, you're, uh, if you've been finding yourself getting tighter and tighter and really trying hard and a little contracted in the process, then that calls for some um, loosening up, relaxing, spaciousness. Because with that spaciousness, the mind can, and heart can see clearly. And if you find that you're just kind of wading into practice, you know, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not, you know. It's not going to happen because it really takes a willingness to, to show up. What happens, that you don't have much say over or control. In fact, it was, it was such a relief in my practice, a, a major um, landmark in my practice was understanding at some point that I, I really don't have control over how mindful or concentrated I am. You ever come into a sitting and saying, I'm going to be mindful if it kills me. You know, it might if you have that attitude. But although I don't have control over how mindful or concentrated or what's happening in every moment, I can have the intention to be here as fully as I can and to just show up and when I realize that I've gone, to come back in a very loving way and begin again. That's my end of the deal. And so it's really important to see 
where your energy is. And as we've said here before, relaxation and ease is really the foundation for clarity and presence and concentration as well. I, I remember on one retreat, I was really getting into, in my earlier years, I'd really get into slow walking, like really slow walking. It was, it was, it's fun. It can be really fun if you're into it. But at some point I was getting a little tight in it. And then I got very tight in it. And I realized that I was just getting tighter and tighter over the course of days and, and a couple of weeks of just moving like a, crawling like a snail. And then I said, wow, this is not working. I think I need to stop trying to be mindful. And I decided to take a, uh, what I thought was a break from practice. And I'm just going to go for a walk and try not to be, and not try to be mindful. And I was at, at IMS and I put on my boots and I, my park and I hadn't been out for, for quite a few days. And I'm going to take an unmindful walk. As I was walking left, right left, right, sniffling, hearing, left, right, thinking, left, right. I couldn't turn it off. (laughs) I couldn't turn it off. As soon as I stopped trying, then it was all there. And it's, it's just really something to keep in mind. Yeah, it does take effort and a willingness to be here as, uh, as one Tibetan master talked about it, that mindfulness, that uh, practice sometimes can seem like manual labor of just kind of bringing yourself back and bringing yourself back. Uh, And it takes, especially these first few days, a willingness to keep coming back to the moment. But once you're here, when you are really here in the moment, any extra effort to make anything happen is extra. It's taking you out because there's all of a sudden you trying to make it a better moment or a more mindful moment. When you're right here and you're in the moment, there's no effort at all. And that, that's when you can simply just allow being to be experienced. Nothing that you need to do. Any doing will take you out of the being. So if you're looking for an evaluation of effort, rather than what's happening out there, I find it helpful to keep on coming back to your sincerity. Your sincerity of heart that Uh, loves the truth, whatever got you here, value it. That loves the truth and just wants to learn as much as you can, wants to wake up in this moment and let that be the the source of uh, of your effort. This is... From a um, it? 
from a yogi who uh, wrote at the uh, at a retreat, finally getting this. He says, um, "It is indeed a huge relief to realize that I'm not in charge of my thoughts; that they come up completely unbidden. It's also a relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of mindfulness. These are indi- indeed just beautiful gifts." I think I have been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So this shift of emphasis towards sincerity of heart and letting the process evolve at its own speed in its own direction has made me incredibly happy. not sheer effort or willpower, but just showing up, a balance of effort. And particularly the key guideline is, is there spaciousness, is there ease in the mind? And is there interest? Because I find that interest is the key to keep us here. You know, just being like a baby, bringing the wonder of a child to your practice. As I think I said earlier, making it like a game just to see, oh, what's happening now? What's this moment like? It's never been here before. It'll never be here again. You know, did I, did I mention about the birthday card here that I have? I have a birthday card in my, uh, that I've never given away because I love it so much. And it's of this baby, this infant, holding a, a booger in his hand, right? cross-eyed, you know, looking at it, just transfixed. Mm. And you open it up and it says, you always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really my, uh, my principal attitude for practice, you know. It's amazing when you look when you look carefully at things life is happening right here it's it takes a little while to get here it's true but once you're here wow life is happening right now amazing and there's an awareness that can open up to it fantastic so as far as this um issue of effort keep on checking in with yourself it's a balancing act. You know, there's that, that famous uh, discourse, the Buddha and this, this monk who was really getting tight. And he said, this is not working. And the Buddha reminds him, weren't you a musician before you became uh, a monk? He said, yeah. And he said, well, what happened when, you, when you, uh, your string on your lute was too tight? Oh, it didn't get the right pitch. And what about too loose? Oh, not the right tone too low he said just the same way you your practice has to be this balance not too tight not too loose and just uh, being present in a, in a balance connected way so I, I really encourage you to explore that that issue of effort and realize there's no right recipe it's a continual checking in and being honest with yourself what do i need right now to support my practice to really show up and trust that
The other um, effort that I want to focus on for the rest of, of the talk has to do with the, um, the teaching on um, the four wise efforts. You, uh, you might not be, many people maybe are, but many, maybe you're not familiar with what wise effort is technically um, defined as in these teachings. And there's four components to it. Two have to do with unwholesome states, akusala, states that are suffering and that lead to more suffering, like greed, hatred, delusion, fear, judgment, all those states that are quite contracted. You probably know those, right? Familiar with them. And those, the two on that side, are guarding against their arising. And if they have arisen, to um, understand ways to overcome them. And that's a lot of probably what you've been um, working with, especially in the first few days when there's a lot of sleepiness or restlessness or busy mind or uh, resistance comes up. Um, how to work with those difficult states, very key to practice so that we're not confused or overwhelmed by them. Then the other two aspects of wise effort, which sometimes don't get as much attention, have to do with cultivation of wholesome states, cultivating these kusala, wholesome states, generosity, compassion, kindness, patience, equanimity, um, all of those beautiful states, to cultivate them. And then when they're here, the fourth aspect of wise effort is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they're here. This is a good thing that the Buddha recommends. Uh, last night uh, I listened to uh, Brian's talk on loving kindness. It was a beautiful talk. And he talked about cultivation and how important it is to, to cultivate and brighten the heart and open, open the heart so we, can, uh, we have energy for practice and we feel a connection with life. And as well to maintain and increase wholesome states when they're here is something that um, doesn't often get as much uh, airplay. This is okay to do. How to do it though? Because we usually think if something is good and we want to maintain it or increase it, oh, we just hope we'll get some more and we want it. Oh, how can I keep this here? Or how can I bring it, bring some more loving kindness? How can I get even more? And the 
the paradox is that you, the more you want something, the more it becomes an unwholesome state. So you can't grasp after it. All that does is turn it into cause of suffering, wanting. So I want to talk a bit about how to, um, and the importance of cultivating and maintaining and increasing wholesome states. And this is, um, this is what led me to do all of this, um, this work these last uh, 10 or 12 years on uh, what I've called awakening joy. Uh, because it's really um, easy to um, forget that this is a path of happiness. It's not a path of grimness. But for a while, I lost my joy. And um, even though when I first got turned on to the practice, it was like coming home, and I had a pretty long honeymoon period, quite a long honeymoon period, doing lots of retreats for, oh, 10 years or so, and just being so grateful. But at some point, I got very serious about my practice, dead serious about my practice. (laughs) Emphasis on the dead. And uh, it got tight there for a while. And then when when I kind of came back to myself and not getting lost in some um, misconceptions I had, subtle beliefs I had about what good practice was, I wanted to see, well, what does the Buddha actually say about joy and happiness and this cultivation and increasing of wholesome states? Now, it's, it's not so unique to me that I got so serious about practice because there are certain concepts that can be uh, misunderstood uh, and that you can, uh, you can get really somber. This is two very important concepts in, uh, in practice that can be misunderstood. One is uh, called samvega. Probably many of you are familiar with it. This is samvega, the oppressive sense of shock dismay and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, this is a very important understanding to get in touch with. However, it's really easy to miss the essence of this profound understanding and the key operative words, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. But life doesn't have to be meaningless and it doesn't have to be futile. There can be 
great well-being and purpose in our life if we see through what we're told is the normal uh, route to happiness. So that's one, one distortion because there was a part of me that for a while was saying, let's get out of here as fast as we can. That's what this is all about. This is another important um, concept, nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which, uh, often, which is sometimes translated um, as uh, one should have um, utter disgust for the aggregates, aggregates, this body and mind, or one should cultivate revulsion with regard to the aggregates, revulsion for this body and this mind. Now it's heavy enough, it's hard enough to look in the mirror and start to like what you see, but when you're told you should have revulsion for it, it's, it makes it a little bit harder to, uh, to bring some kindness towards yourself. But really, um, those are translations for a term that, ha- that has a deeper kind of a meaning because a more accurate understanding of nibbida is um, one should develop um, disenchantment with regard to this mind and body. Disenchantment. One should not be enchanted with it. One should break the spell of being enthralled and enchanted with this package, this one here or those out there. But it's really easy to mistake that for um, having a negative view about yourself or others and um, one shouldn't really appreciate the beauty of things. And this is uh, Ajahn Sumedho uh, on this topic, Ajahn Sumedho, this really respected uh, senior Theravadan Buddhist monk. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selfless nature of reality but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. This is a good thing 
to see the beauty and the goodness of things. And when we're touched by it, to um, feel the wholesomeness when our heart opens. The Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, with the sentence, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. That's a powerful statement. The purpose of life is to be happy. When you find true happiness, where true happiness lies, then all of the beautiful qualities inside of you shine through. So it becomes a a great gift to everybody who knows you and who's in contact with you as you can allow for genuine happiness to be experienced. Then the Buddha was called the happy one. He said, go for the highest happiness and all the other ones will follow. True happiness will follow. Mm. This is the Buddha. Mm. Live in joy. This is the Thomas Byram translation of the Dhammapada. Live in joy in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So um, I want to look at this um, in terms of the these four right efforts, particularly in terms of the 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 two positive ones to cultivate wholesome states and to maintain and increase them when they're here. That's the fourth. <clears throat> The Buddha says, along with these wholesome states, that all are expansive states of heart and mind, that there's a gladness that is experienced in the middle of a wholesome state. Maybe you've had one wholesome moment or or more since you've been here. It feels good, doesn't it? He says, don't miss the gladness that's connected with that wholesome state. In one discourse, he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That is, you can be having a bummer of a day and all of a sudden, you have an experience of uplift or your heart is touched. There's something beautiful that you see or you feel a sense of peace or well-being or maybe a moment of metta in a reflection and all of a sudden everything evaporates. All that tightness evaporates. That gladness 
is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says that gladness, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. It gladdens and opens the heart. It delights us. He says, this is a good thing. And he says, to pay attention to that gladness. And in in this one discourse, he gives the example of being in the middle of a generous act. He says, if you're in the middle of the generous act, he recommends thinking to yourself, I'm being generous now. This is the Buddha saying, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He's not saying, I hope everybody sees how generous I am and hey, check it out, pretty pretty cool. No, that's just taking ownership of that generosity. But he's saying, notice how good it feels as generosity moves through us. Oh, this feels so good. And let it be, let it touch you. Let it gladden the heart. Don't miss it. Be present for it. And as you do that, practice doing that consistently, you start to incline your mind in the direction of seeing what's good. We can be so good at looking for what's wrong that we can miss out on all the moments that things aren't wrong. Brian was talking about that last night, you know. Oh, this is this is a moment of loving kindness. Don't miss it. This is a very, um, not only powerful practice in terms of the teachings, but in terms of neuroscience as well. That the more you take in the good, the more you start to affect your brain structure. <clears throat> and as you maybe know about the, this little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in your brain called the amygdala that looks out for what can go wrong. Uh, and uh, it's very good at doing that. Especially when we're stressed out, that's what it tunes into. But we can forget to look out for what's right. As uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, try the practice, oh, what's not wrong now? Uh, and when people say, you know, awakening joy, you know, I'll just, I'll just take not being miserable, thank you, you know. I say, start to notice the moments when you're not miserable. Because there's actually quite a lot of them. We just miss them. I, uh, I came across one study that said, for most people, um, when you have a negative encounter, it takes, on average, seven positive interactions to balance it out. Because that's how we're wired up to, to get tight and we contract and uh, it takes a while to loosen up unless we have practiced and things don't stick in the same way or we're looking for what's right and what's good. As um, Rick Hansen, who I'm sure many of you know, the uh, Spirit Rock 
um, uh, community member and, uh, and, and teacher, neuroscience expert, says that the brain is um, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. <laughs> so it takes some training to move it in the other direction. But um, it can be done. And this is, this is hopefully what I, I want to encourage you in your practice to notice what's not wrong and when there are moments of gladness and openness to really take them in and, and savor them. As uh, Rick has a, has a suggestion, he says, if you practice um, taking in the good 30 seconds when you're feeling a wholesome experience, do that 30 seconds that is just being mindful of that uplifting feeling. And you do that six times in a day. I know that's three minutes of wholesome qualities. That's a lot. We're stretching ourselves here. (laughs) If you do that over a two-week period, you will start to notice a difference in your whole level of well-being, partly because you're changing your, uh, the neural pathways and also because you're starting to become more and more tuned into the good around you. So this is something that you might consider in your practice. And I'm not talking about living in denial and pretending that everything is just hunky-dory when it's not. And in fact, this is where the other aspects of the the wise effort come in to learn how to overcome our uh, our difficult mind states. And actually, even in that holding our difficult mind states with kindness, with compassion, with a loving presence, that in itself starts to turn those unwholesome or states of suffering to be held in uh, and changes them into more wholesome states. Mm -hmm. But this is your true nature. It's not like you've got to manufacture well-being. It's who we are. You were born into this world with a natural aliveness and joy. You see a baby, if it's fed and diapered and gets a little bit of love, what does a baby do? It squeals with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? And that's one reason we like being around babies. In fact, no, just remembering, I'll give you a little hit of this. This is um, Chloe Thomas, who was born premature, uh, eight weeks premature. And this picture, was she was not yet nine months old. Um, and she, um, uh, but you can see, she'll just remind you of your true nature. Meet Chloe. I don't know if you can see it from back there. That's who you really are. (laughs) 
Isn't that good news? You just forgot, right? Now, you might say, well, yeah, that was then. It's a long time ago, right? It's not so far. And actually, when they uh, put an adult in an fMRI machine, and if that adult does not have uh, pain in the body or stress, under stress in the mind, what the, the brain naturally uh, exhibits is um, its conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's your natural state when you're not stressed. And as uh, was a guy was saying the other day that sometimes dukkha is translated as stress. When we are not filled with dukkha, or when dukkha is not taking us over, the end of dukkha is that. It's calm, caring, creative, content, conscious. That's who you are. So this is just uncovering what's here all the time. And when it is here, not to miss it. Don't miss it. I want to uh, share with you just a few ways that um, this works. A few different wholesome states that I'll I'll uh, talk about in the um, in the joy course. Uh, I I've picked ten wholesome states from the teachings that can be cultivated, and the key is when we're in the middle of them to let ourselves truly feel them. I'll just mention um, a few. One is um, gratitude, a very direct way to connect with well-being. And right in the, uh, the Mangala Sutta, the Discourse on Blessings, the Buddha says that this is a, a good thing to do, to be, to be reverent and humble Content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. It is a natural thing that happens in this practice. And uh, a number of people have come into interviews as they've settled down. If If their heart isn't contracted, the natural outflowing is gratitude for life, for the blessings in our life, and you can naturally incline that. You know, I, I asked you uh, at the beginning, the first evening, to reflect on all the things that got you here. All the support that you were given, all the, the circumstances, and the, the fact that there's been a deep calling inside of you that says, I just need to do this. I need to give myself to Dharma practice. That's amazing karma. Don't miss it in thinking, oh, woe is me because this 
happened or I get stuck in this pettiness and this judgment, what a pathetic mess I am. You're missing out on something here. And to have gratitude both for the external and for the internal, for your own sincerity, uh, that's the context with which to process any of the difficulties that come. One of my uh, teachers says that gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish. If you're so busy complaining and seeing, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong and this isn't working and that's working, there's no way for the blessings to be experienced and taken in. But when the heart can say, even in the midst of difficulty, amazing grace, thank you, thank you for this moment that I'm learning. Then it's like the satellite dish that can just take in all the blessings around us. So just as a, a little exercise, so you get a sense of, of applying this um, maintaining and increasing the wholesome states. Not with grasping, just with presence. I invite you uh, just to close your eyes for a moment and um, think of some blessing in your life. Someone or something that you're grateful to or grateful for. And have an image either of that person or that situation that being. And as you have that image and connect with that gratitude, just say a silent, simple thank you from your heart. Thank you. And now just relax into that feeling. Thank you. Take a breath, we'll do a couple more. Bring to mind another blessing in your life. Have an image if you can. A simple thank you from your heart, thank you. And just relax into that feeling. Just feel the landscape of gratitude. One last one, take a breath. We have so many blessings. Bring to mind one last one, one more for now. Have an image. simple thank you from your heart. Thank you. Just relax into it. Let yourself feel it. Nothing that you need to make more of. Just let yourself feel it. Don't miss it. Mm. Okay, you can open up your eyes if you'd like. And this can be 
learned. This can, you can train your heart to open up. When it's tight, you know, that, that can be an antidote when you're feeling like everything is against you. Just thinking of our blessings, you know. But even when, when we're having a hard time, we can open up with appreciation for the fact that there's an awareness that knows. As I was saying to somebody in, uh, uh, in an interview, I love uh, Pema Chodron's line, who uh, she says, when you're having a really hard time, when you're filled with dukkha, she says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. The fact that you can see it, the fact that it can be held in the light of awareness, the fact that there's a way to be holding it with some kindness and compassion, the fact that there's an awareness that can see, rather than getting hung up on the dukkha, notice and take delight in the fact that it's being seen. Because every time you see it, it's not running you. If you can see it with kindness and compassion and not take ownership of it, ah, that too. You can train the heart and the mind in that way as well. And it's possible to change. And uh, let's see. I think I will. I'll share with you. Um, some of you have heard uh, this story, but it's it's my favorite story of um, of this whole awakening joy stuff. And that's uh, of my mom, who um, who passed away this year. She uh, uh, died in June at the age of 94. And uh, my mom is a, is a YouTube star, in case you haven't seen her. Uh, I think it's up to uh, 230,000 views or so. If you go to uh, Confessions of a Jewish Mother, How My Son Ruined My Life. Is the, <laughs> and uh, I, I share this story to, to let you know that it's possible to change. Um, my mom, as she says in the, on the video, uh, is uh, a Jewish mother and a born kvetch, which means complainer about everything. And I, we had a great relationship. She's a lot of fun. And, uh, but she would always see what was wrong. And uh, I was visiting her down in L.A. Uh, I, I live up here, and she, was, she lived down in L.A., right near my sister, very close um, and my sister was going away for a couple of weeks and uh, we agreed I'd spend a week with my mom. And I was writing the book and happened to be writing on the chapter on gratitude when, uh, uh, when I was down there. And I had all of this um, research on how gratitude, the power of gratitude that impu- Im- improves your immune system and uh, improves your social relationships and you take better care of your body and all of this really wonderful stuff. And uh, I shared it with her and she said, wow, that's very impressive. And then I said, hey mom, how about having a gratitude practice? And she looked at me, she rolled her eyes and said, look, James, dear, I know my life is blessed, but I've been seeing the glass half empty for a long time 
and I don't think I'm about to change. I said, yeah, I, I know. She said, I'm 89, you know. And I said, well, let me ask you, if you could change, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but I don't think I, I'm about to. And I said, okay, well, let's play this little game. Every time you complain, I'll just remind you, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. Like, oh, it's so cold here in Marina Del Rey. (laughs) And, oh, and my life is blessed. Well, we had the greatest week. We laughed the whole week as the complaints just rolled off her tongue, (laughs) one after another. And each time I catch it, and, oh yeah, and my life is blessed. And um, slowly she got it. And uh, much to my, well, when I got home, I called her a lot after the, when I first got home, which was new in itself. I was calling her every day and saying, and, you know. And a friend of hers also was kind of playing the game along with her. My sister, who is very much a similar uh, attitude of my mom, she came home from her vacation and her first comment was, what did you do to mom? (laughs) She was not particularly thrilled, but uh, she got used to it. And amazingly, um, it stuck. And uh, I include in, in the... Uh, in the book, a poem that she wrote to me seven months later, because it was my birthday, and we, um, we always exchanged poems on our birthdays in our family. And she was losing her uh, sight to macular degeneration uh, in the interim when this happened, because there's a reference to it in the, in the poem. She says, uh, 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom could change at 89, (laughs) anyone can change. And it wasn't just for that, those seven months or that year, the whole last five years of her life, this was her main practice. Every conversation, my wife didn't quite believe it at first. She just thought, oh, it's a cute kind of a thing. But she kind of saw, oh wow, this is real. Every conversation we're so blessed. I'm so blessed. How could, how could I have missed it? I'm so blessed. And her last words, actually a few weeks before, I, before she passed away, and she, she uh, knew she had cancer for the last year of her life, and I visited her a lot that last year. And throughout that whole year, she'd be talking about how blessed she was. And then I, a few weeks before the end, I, I went into her one morning, um, and uh, she was, looked like in deep thought. And then she opened up her eyes and saw me. And I said, wow, mom, wh- what was going through your mind? And she said, well, actually, my mind was completely devoid of all thought except thank you, God, thank you, God. <laughs>
I said, wow, mom, that is, can I quote you on that? And she said, will I get a commission? <laughs> and her, her last words, I said, you know, do you want anything read at your memorial? She said, of course. My mom, uh, my dad had done a whole, he wrote his own eulogy. And I, I said, okay, well, give me, tell me what you want to say. And she, besides her comments about uh, politics, she was a, a rabid, progressive, uh, radical liberal. Uh, she uh, then said, it's been such an incredible run. My life has been so blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a small word and it means everything. I wish you good health, good politics and happy lives. Goodbye. That's what stuck with her. So I say this to you um, in case you're thinking, oh well, I've... I've, my habits are deep. It is possible to practice. It's possible to train your mind and your heart to look for the good inside and out. Doesn't mean to live in denial and don't see what's here. We want to see things clearly, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but to uh, not miss those moments of well-being. As the Buddha said, wise effort to cultivate the wholesome and to maintain and increase the wholesome just by being present for it, letting it register. And in that you awaken all the beautiful qualities in you and it becomes a gift to the world. So let's just sit for a moment now. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.